From hook and bullet to policy and science, we're here to discuss and dissect all matters of importance to Montana's rugged landscape and the people and wildlife that call it home. This is Montana Untamed. It's been 20 years since Mac Menard took the reins of the Montana Outfitters and Guides Association, and today he hangs up that hat as he officially retires from the organization. Before his tenure at MOGA, which it is commonly referred to, Menard spent over 20 years as a biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. MOGA represents over 250 of Montana's professionally licensed outfitter and guides who operate throughout the entire state of Montana. The industry accounted for over $500 million in non-resident spending in 2021 alone, according to data from Montana's Office of Tourism. A lifelong outdoorsman, Menard is here to talk about his career and provide his wisdom on the past, present, and future of hunting and outfitting in Montana. So first off, Mac, uh, thank you for joining me. Um, tell me your, about your background in biology, you know, in your early career in Alaska. Oh, sure, Tom. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to a, a bit of a visit. Um, I was always, um, as a young kid, interested in the outdoors like so many of us, and mm -hmm. um, that passion led me to uh, the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. I uh, attended that school for the purpose of getting my wildlife uh, management and research degree. Um, call me a slow learner. I was able to stretch that out over a six-year period. Um, but during that time, I was fortunate enough to get hired by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game during the summer months. And although I had gone there with the intention of uh, pursuing a fur bearer biologist type career, oh. I found out uh, through studies that I had a knack for statistics and scientific sampling and design. And that knack lent itself more to the fisheries side. Hmm. So my summer work with Alaska Fish and Game in my, during my collegiate career yeah. was all related to salmon and uh, in Bristol Bay, which huh. is 350 air miles southwest of Anchorage. Right. And so that was sort of my introduction to what it would look like to be a biologist. And it only took me one season. And I decided then that I would become the research biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Bristol Bay. And I probably was the only one that thought that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so your that work was focused mostly on studying salmon, which which is a huge, huge for Alaska. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired by Commercial Fish Research Division, um, put in sonar systems, developed techniques, uh, sampling designs, and that sort of thing. And as my career progressed um, and eventually graduated, mm -hmm. I was picked up as a full-time biologist for uh, Alaska Fish and Game stationed in Dillingham, which is southwest Alaska. After seven or eight years of that, um, I was offered the position to take over the um, sport fish division side of it. Oh, interesting. So I did that, and that transition from commercial fish to sport fish put me more into the inland waters. It was sort of my introduction to the industry, um, because at that time, the lodge industry in southwest Alaska was beginning to grow. That would have been in the 70s, 80s, and I was a part of the very initial work. Mostly I was working on um, those large rainbow trout stocks. I was working on coho and I was working on king salmon. 
hmm. models. So, so I guess for folks that are maybe less familiar with the way Alaska is set up, it sounds like switching to sport fishing was more tailored towards um, uh, resource management for recreation users, not for commercial users. Is that is 100%. that fair? And there's the, the classic rift between, you know, the commercial use and the sport fish use. Mm -hmm. And then I was there during the years when the subsistence use became sort of a mm -hmm. recognized third leg. And, right. and there were times, Tom, where you would be, you know, at meetings and you had very passionate local uh, folks, largely native, who just objected to the whole catch and release idea. Mm -hmm. And yet as a, a, a point of conservation, it was being celebrated, you know, in, in the other community. So that's how far apart those two groups were. Right. And um, fast, fast forward ahead, 20 years, 25 years later, I was delighted to be invited to come and develop what would become the Bristol Bay Guide Academy. Hmm which was intended to bring young people from the villages, largely native, uh, certainly shareholders of the Bristol Bay Native Corporation, into the uh, guiding community. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we introduce that in a culture, the Yupik culture doesn't even have a word for service in the sense that you and I think of it. Um, right. You go to a, a checkout line and I'm gonna serve you mm -hmm. or I'm going to, uh, serve you a plate or something. They're sharing, right. no question about it. But, um, you know, that is a massive leap forward in cultural bridge. Right. And this has now gone on for, I want to say this will be my 14th year no of helping to do the Bristol Bay Guide Academy, which is now the grandkids of the very people who, you know, found fault with what we were trying to do at that time. And, and I, I hope we can weave that through this conversation because it is entirely possible for people to come together over thorny issues, culturally different value systems. Um, th there's ways to do that. Right, right. And you kind of took the words out of my mouth uh, that I was about to say about that experience. Um, you can see how that sort of experience helps in the position um, that you did with MOGA, um, because that's, that's exactly, I mean, you're in the middle of all those conversations. Um, so let's, how did you wind up in Montana and, and, you know, uh, running, Well, I had done the MOGA. usual thing, you know, I was, uh, living the life as an area biologist in Bristol Bay. I was a pilot for the state of Alaska. I had a super cub on floats, wheels, and skis assigned to me. I, mm -hmm. I, um, I think it was roughly 4,000 hours of state flying, something like that. My area was the size of the state of Washington. Right. 56,000 square miles. It sounds like a lot of fun. It was a great time. <laughs> it was a terrific time to be a young professional in a remote area. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were off the road system. Right. I'd met my wife there. This wasn't a hardship for her. Our best friends early in life built our own homes, raised our own children. But it was, in fact, uh, the... Um, when two daughters came along and a question mark became, do I really, is this the right place or do they need something a little more? So I was getting toward the end of my career as a, I was by then a regional supervisor out of Fairbanks. So I had about 80% of the state that I was responsible for. 
And an opportunity came in Montana to come down and work for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Okay. So it was kind of a rehirement, sort of. I retired from Alaska, came down here, had the number two job in fisheries, um, working out of the Helena office. Okay. And I did that for about a year or so. To say, um, you know, it wasn't a good fit or whatever is trite, but bottom line was the culture uh, was different. The decision making was different, mm-hmm. and and frankly, it just wasn't working out for anybody. It wasn't right. it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It just wasn't what I was looking for, uh, you know, for a second element of my career. Right. And so I ended up leaving that, and then hanging out. I didn't know what I was going to do, Tom. <laughs> I honestly didn't. I'd moved my whole family down here, bought a house. I mean, anybody that knows me knows it's usually all in. Mm-hmm. There, there's not much reservation. You make a decision, you go. Right. Anyway, um, I started doing some work for Kenai River Sport Fish Association as a contract guy, mostly advocacy and regulations and stuff. And then my neighbor, Rory Copeland, who's now passed, came down and said, hey, um, I got a job for you. Huh. He was a guide uh, at that time. One of the he was closely aligned with the leadership of MOGA. Okay. And the executive director that they had was was leaving, um, and they were looking for one. And so that's kind of how I got introduced to the idea that I might go to work for MOGA. No kidding. And mm-hmm. and I mean your your previous work. I mean made you suited for the job. It sounds like. It's kind of a funny combination when you think about it, because if you, as a biologist, I could understand that policy. Right. As a scientist, it was easy for me to evaluate what was being coming at us. As a, I guess you'd say, a, a regulatory person, mm-hmm. I, I knew the systems. And by the time I'd worked a year in, in Montana, I understood MAPA and I understood the state systems here. The Montana landscape exactly. when it comes to that. Um, you know, I didn't know a lot of the dynamics of the industry. I didn't know a lot of the key players. Mm -hmm. Um, I was walking into, um, uh, you know, an administration that wasn't necessarily friendly Hmm. to the industry that I'd be representing. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the bigger jokes was when uh, Lee Hart, who was president of MOGA, just a delightful, wonderful, wonderful man out of uh, the Gallatin Gateway area, uh, I had quit three times before he hired me. I just, I told him, Lee, I said, I'm not your man. I'm not your man. And mm-hmm. he'd say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And then eventually I just gave in to the guy cause he was such a great, great man. And, um, ended up going to work and Kim Copeland at that time was our office manager. And we were in a, just a dank little one room basement thing that really made you wonder how the hell we were ever going to do anything here. Right. Right. Um, wow. Um, and so, I mean, I guess over that span, like obviously things have changed greatly, not only for the organization, but for, you know, the landscape of guiding and outfitting in Montana and, you know, this recognition, I think, that it's such a valuable part of our economy um, and for a lot of folks' way of life. Um, what how have things changed in those 20 years from when you started, you know, how have things changed, um, in the state for, you know, guides and outfitters, you know, and what are some of those, um, forces that, that caused those changes over, you know, the span of your career? Well, that's a flood of stuff. (laughs) 
I mean, to examine that would be to examine what things were like 20 years ago. Right. And what, and so what were they like, I guess? Yeah, you start there, and there, there was just this incredible dissension uh, among organizations that, you know, represented themselves as conservation or sportsmen and, and, and had some political clout because we were coming off of or into the Schweitzer and then ultimately the Bullock administration. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's not 100% by any means, but the, the political views of the people I represent are largely conservative, right. rural values. Yep. The people that were engaged in that administration and supported by that administration we're not we're, that. we're not right there aren't right. and um generally and i'm not i'm not i'm trying not to label but the political landscape was something to the effect that you know the house and the senate were always kind of conservative mm -hmm. we we could essentially pass any responsible legislation we thought we needed right but we couldn't get it signed right and 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 as such um it was there, it was a period of time, in my opinion, Tom, where nobody trusted anybody. Hmm. Personal relationships really didn't exist among different viewpoints. They, the common thing, and I was guilty of it, I, and I was good at it, go to your corner, sharpen your knife, and come out fighting. Right. Because that's how you felt um, about what was being thrown at you. And then, you know, fast forward then to 2010, and I-161. Mm -hmm. I-161 was a defining moment for me personally because I watched what came to be as, you know, on the, on the, the side of those people that supported it. It was just so important. We couldn't, you know, we, you know things like outfitter welfare and, and, you know, property rights and all this kind of stuff came into play. Can you give us, give us a primer on I-161? So I-161 was a ballot initiative brought forward to eliminate what was the outfitter-sponsored license. The outfitter-sponsored license was a license that was limited to about 5,500 and change on big game combination non-resident licenses. And the idea was that um, outfitters would accept um, a, a, a thing called NCHU net hunting client use, mm -hmm. and that would be a parallel to limiting um, use, outfitted use on private land like they had on Forest Service land through special use permit. Mm -hmm. So it was an effort to sort of cap the industry. Um, uh, and the issue there wasn't the industry service as much as it was leasing of private land and, and you know, rank and file out Montanans not being able to gain access to lands they'd had before. And, you know, that's all debatable how right. that was actually being manifested. But that was the driver and as we entered into it, it was probably one of the most ugly um, experiences I have ever had. Hmm. Um, Tom, for me personally, I will never sign a ballot initiative because I know how corrupt the whole thing can be. Right. And these are passionate people on the other side. I'm not disparaging that, but I am telling you, I have a briefcase full of signatures, of, of false statements, of, and it, it was just... 
amazing to me that we could go down this path. Well, I-161 eventually passed by a decent margin. Mm -hmm. Help, if you read the ballot language, I would have signed it. It was so confusing. Right. You wouldn't have known. And that's my point. That's a common uh, criticism of the ballot initiative process. Exactly. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not opposed to one man, one vote. I'm, I, I, you know, don't misunderstand me if you're listening to this. But in this particular case, it was brutal. Right. And we told them as we went into this, this was the wrong thing to do. And ultimately... <laughs> What happened was the ballot initiative increased the non-guided individual by, I want to say, 50% hmm. and decreased the guided component by 30%. So we ended up in a circumstance, this is the collective genius of these initiatives, mm -hmm. in a situation where we had unlimited licenses within the 17,000 that are allocated right. at a reduced price. Right. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you raise the price by 50% on the unguided component, what's going to happen to them? They're, they're not going to buy them. Right. So those licenses became available to us at a reduced price. Mm -hmm. So for seven years, the department, it might have been five, lost money on license, non-resident license sales. We weren't selling out. We weren't in a draw. And, um, and that was, you know, a, a bit of a boon probably for the industry. What was ironic about it was we were tracking acreages that um, the outfitting industry was using on private land. And even though they had a period of seven years or so to grow, mm -hmm. they didn't. It was really kind of strange. So what it said was there is a certain capacity here. Mm -hmm. And, and... It, it's kind of there. It, it's the quality of service, the quality of, uh, you know, the, the number of people wanting to engage in it. The the private land thing hadn't actually grown, even though it could have. Hmm. Um, yeah. So that was a that was an eye opener. Right. Um, so that was that landscape also played itself into the commission process. We right. saw a lot of. Um, I would almost call it punitive action directed at uh, the outfitting side of it through commission work, um, permits, uh, restrictions on lions, a, a variety of things. And, mm -hmm. and Tom, often these were triggered by um, individuals who had maybe a singular or a couple of bad experiences. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and all of a sudden you'd be into, you know, a situation where, permits were being invoked in a place where abundance of animals wasn't the issue. Right. Um, and, but it was a way to get at um, and limit the non-resident activity uh, to 10% or less. Right. And so, you know, it's kind of odd to be the, the person who stands up, A, for a Montana-based industry. I mean, these are these are basketball coaches, they're ranchers, they're farmers, they're your neighbors, they're on the ambulance, you know, group. They're the same people you go to church with, right? Mm -hmm. And yet their clientele was the nameless, faceless, non-resident client. Mm -hmm. And in those days and even today, there just isn't anybody looking out for that side of it. Um, and that was a task that fell to us, right. to me. And... And it's not popular. I mean, how could that possibly be popular? Right. Um, you're going to have people who feel disenfranchised by that. Mm -hmm. And um, and yet, they were the people that were 
largely paying the bills um, for the department. You know, 70% of the department's budget is tied to non-resident spending. Right, absolutely. And we're, you and I and everyone else that's a Montanan get to enjoy hunting privileges at a reduced rate for that. Whether whether we're willing to increase that um, is debatable, but every time I've watched in the 10 legislative sessions I attended, I never saw it as an easy lift to change, you know, license fees. So I feel like I'm rambling here a little no, bit. No, so, so I mean, I guess, and, and to button up that question, I guess how the way it looks now, how's that different then? It, it sounds like the, the interest in, in the industry that you represent maybe has a little bit more of a respected seat at the table today. Well, that I, I, I'm delighted to talk about that transition because it was brutal. Mm-hmm. It was a gunfight, and my kids got to read things about me in the paper. They, you know, could get accosted even at school sometimes. And, and you know, Mac was the guy that spit bullets and breathed fire or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that came from because that's not actually who I am. Right. Um, but if that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing. And, um, well, what happened, what happened over time, well past I-161, some of the scars were healed. Some of the vagaries that had been predicted didn't really happen. Right. Um, I would say at least two things happened, and three maybe. Um, one, the University of Montana, ITRR, the Institute for Recreation Research, right. began to look at the impact first of I-161, there was a guy that did his master's thesis on it. And then they began to do estimates of, of tourism and where different segments of tourism fit into the overall fabric of Montana. Well, it was astounding that all of a sudden outfitting was at that time the fifth largest in the state. Right only behind food, fuel, lodging, and retail sales. That was a stunner. We were all sitting there at the Governor's Tourism Conference. Governor Bullock had hosted it, and this data gets put up on the screen, and we're ahead of the ski industry. We're ahead of, you know, you just name it, uh, other than those. Right. And then that number would change over time to where we became the fourth the right. only ones ahead of us were food, fuel, and lodging. Mm-hmm. And people don't come to Montana to drive, sleep, and eat. Right. And so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, that, a lot of those, if you look deeper into those, it's, it's these, you know, these tourism and this visitation and, you know, all this, that's all ties into that. It you know? really does. And, and, and the realization that the outfitting community was the one that was distributing these tourism dollars across into rural Montana. Right. Because imagine... Not just in the big urban areas. Exactly. You know, if you go to a tourism meeting, you find out that it's Big Sky and Gateway Communities mm-hmm. and everybody else. Right. Well, we were servicing the everybody else. Right. So that was the first thing. And, and, and honestly, from a policy statement or position, I don't think either the legislators or decision makers have yet to fully embrace the magnitude of that. Right. I think it's coming yeah. um, because the economics of tourism, you could characterize outfitted tourism as relatively high price, relatively low volume, relatively low impact. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you want in rural communities. And right. there's a beginning and there's an end and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's some value in that. And, and people may find fault with what I just said, but at least that's how I look at it. Right. Then what happened beyond that was a pivotal change in the way MOGA leadership wanted to engage. Their natural tendencies, if, if you understand what a MOGA member is, if you understand what our leadership is, they tend to be ranchers and farmers first and outfitters maybe second or equal. So these people are rural values to the core. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are multi-generational most of the time, many times within their business. Their corporate headquarters is a kitchen table. Right, right. You know, it's, it's a guy and his wife and his kids, maybe their second or third generation into it. Um, well, and really because because outfitting is so much like a a uh, also a result of their way of life, you know, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, well, you know, you know they live in those places where people yep. want to come visit and hunt. Yep. They they work with stock in their everyday life that you know they're using to transport you know these yep. clients. You know, so it's it seems like a pretty natural trajectory for folks that are living that way of life to get into this sort of industry. It, it really is, and it it diversified the income stream in an otherwise ag community that mm -hmm. would allow them to weather ups and downs in cattle prices or beet prices or whatever it might be. Right. So I mean, it was all part of that fabric. But going to the point thinking about who these people are, their entire persona is relationship building. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of, of top leaders come in. We've had great leadership, um, great leadership in MOGA. Um, I'm not going to, there's a couple of stories that are really impinged on me about integrity and honesty and the way they were going to move forward, but a couple of them come to mind, both Wagner Harmon, who's out in Bainville, and Chuck Ryan, who's over in uh, Melville. Um, these, what, what emerged was an interest in building relationships with people that might not agree with you or don't agree with you. And rather than scurrying to our table, our corners, um, and sharpening our knives and coming out, how about we start the process of sitting down and talking? Mm -hmm. And how about we do it in a way where we, we agree not to weaponize the information that we're sharing with each other? And what, what do you say we, we trust? We put a measure of trust out there. Mm -hmm. And that is a relatively new phenomenon within this um, policy space. It was far more common to not talk to each other, assume the worst, come out fighting, and whoever had the political clout won. The problem with those kinds of decisions, Tom, is they don't last. Right. Because they weren't measured, they weren't created in a space of, um, of understanding and uh, acceptance and compromise and that sort of thing. And I was guilty of it. I'm not going to lie. I'm damn good at coming out of the corner with it, you know, if that's right. what we're going to do. But it wasn't productive. And so... I would say fast forward to the last legislative session right. where all of a sudden you've got MOGA, you've got the Montana Wildlife Federation, you've got any number of organizations that have usually lined up on policy issues in different spaces coming together on a package of six or eight bills that uh, they didn't change the world, 
but they demonstrated to the legislature, they demonstrated to the governor's office, they demonstrated to the people of Montana that diverse interests can come together and make things happen. Right. And and that that is the way to do business. A lot of the legislative observers from this last session were expecting fireworks and then those fireworks kind of didn't happen because of this big cooperative approach, like you mentioned, from all of these organizations. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering is, is what do you think going forward now, you know, for, for the future of MOGA, what are those great, what are the greatest challenges, you know, that you see kind of, um, coming up, um, and, and what's like the biggest threat to the industry and that way of life? Well, <clears throat> the threats that come at this industry are in part not any different than threats in any other industry. So let's, let's break it down like right into the internal parts of running a business today. Right. It doesn't matter if you're a contractor, a restaurant, or an outfitter. Uh, recruitment and retention of good quality employees um, and adapting to a younger changing workforce mm -hmm. and their value systems become incredibly challenging, especially in the cowboy world of outfitting where you know, it was normal to work seven days, 10 days, 20 days straight. Um, and in today's younger, newer workforce, there is a demand for weekends and, and work balance and things that um, I'm not sure most wilderness outfitters would under, have understood. Right, right. So those challenges are there, um, just like anybody else. And they're dealing with them. Mm -hmm. They are uh, part of our MOGA convention focused on how to address that. The other ones are regulatory in nature. There is, uh, you know, a growing, uh, and, and it ebbs and flows depending on the administrations. Um, at a federal level, there's uh, sort of a, a departure from the passion of outdoor uh, recreation as it was 10 or 20 years ago and moving more toward a different kind, uh, you know, less consumptive style type stuff to, you know, something else. Our relationships with the U.S. Forest Service is, are critical. Absolutely. Because of the permitting and relationship building. And, and, and we often have to remind each other that we're each other were partners, mm -hmm. um, for example, and this takes effort. This takes time because you get a lot of turnover in the Forest Service, and there's a they're a decentralized organization, so it's really difficult at times to understand why one permit administrator or district ranger behaves this way, and yet over here on exactly the same issue, they are behaving differently. Right. So a tremendous amount of work on the regulatory and permitting side. Um, those are challenges and, and reaffirmation of the relationship between the outfitter and the Forest Service or BLM, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, we service a segment of the public who seek to access their public treasures, but who don't have the ability to do it. They may not have the time. They may not have the skill set. They may not have the equipment. So we are, we're an important piece 
of those people enjoying their own national treasures. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you maintain a level of support for those land bases, those, those pieces. So right. we've got to remind ourselves of that. And then I guess, I guess from a, an industry standpoint, hunting and fishing, um, the challenges on the hunting side are stability and licensing. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, if you're running a business where you've marketed, you have repeat clientele, you've provided a good service, but you have to roll the dice before you can tell whether you're going to be able to book a client or not, it's an unsustainable business model. Mm-hmm. And people can say anything they want to about, you know, oh, it's equity, fairness. What that? No, it isn't. Because there isn't a business in downtown Helena that has somebody wanting to come in and spend money and, and take part of their services that has to roll the dice before they can decide whether they open or close the door. And so if you can accept or if you would accept that outfitting in at some level is important to the rural economy, local economies, and it needs to be sustained then or should be sustained, then some stability and licensing is necessary. Mm. And otherwise, what do you get? Mm-hmm. You get low-budget operators, fly-by-night stuff. They, they don't invest in the, in the capital uh, investments. They don't invest in their communities because they're rolling the dice. They don't know if they're in business one year to the next. You right. don't get the best of what you can. And so rather, we've sought out ways to create some stability in that. Not and when you speak about license, you're talking about hunting, non-resident hunting licenses. Exactly. Like being able to count on how many are going to be there for the future exactly. seasons. Exactly. You know, these people's exactly. these people's business is dependent on, you know, the availability of these licenses and yeah. this opportunity for non-residents. You yeah. Know? So and balancing, if the state is toying with yeah. this opportunity, it's hard to plan for your business. Is that yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's not a matter of wanting a total market share. It's a matter of just having some stability in it. I mean, an un, a guided hunting client in the state of Montana compared to an unguided non-resident is 15 times greater. Right. The economic return. Right. So when, when we're, you know, and I don't know what the numbers will be exactly, but back in the day of 161, it was around 5,500 plus 1,700, you know, and change on deer. You know, your market share is, I don't know, you know, six, 7,000 licenses, something like that. Why in the world wouldn't you optimize the economic benefits to the state of Montana for, on that, and, and allow the balance to be utilized you know, by the unguided sector. You get both sectors. Mm-hmm. In fact, you get a larger unguided sector. But the outfitted client, I mean, doesn't generally compete with you. They're going to be on property you're probably not going to be on, at mm-hmm. least at that time. Or if they're in the back country, they're going further back in than most Montanans have the equipment and ability. Not all, because right. there's some really good, good backcountry guys, right? Right. But the gist of it is, is stability and licensing. And, and this has been a cornerstone that, you know, detractors of the industry can see it as a way to keep it off balance, to not make it work, to make it really difficult. Agitate. Well, maybe, you know, just strategically 
boy, we don't want that. Well, I think people have realized that it's not as bad if you have some stability in Mm -hmm. it. And, and for example, the transition now to permits, uh, there's licenses and then there's permits and, and the permit to harvest in a special area immediately invokes the 10% rule, 10% or less go to non-residents. There is a value in some of these permits across the state, but it, but in, in our industry, if you're in a general area that goes to permit, you just lost 90% of your client base. Right. And so we're going to want to have discussions about how can there be some level of certainty in the permit process because the permit process is valuable it, it, in a growing population and controlling you know, use, enhancing not just conservation but perhaps quality of experience. Right. Um, but where does that leave an industry that's returning 15 times the economic value? Yeah, and it kind of seems that, like, the state is moving more and more towards permitting, like you say, to yeah. control, you know, control hunter numbers. Yep. And, and, you know, and what they say is that this is an attempt to, to you know, maintain, you know, quality and stuff like that. But what you're saying is the more the program switches to a permit-based program, the more difficult it is for folks in your industry to, yeah. you know, make it make ends meet. Yeah, and so let's let's through conversation, through honest dialogue, through compromise and, and thoughtful deliberation, let's come up with a way that it's a win-win. MoGA would like to be able to support those kind of proposals when they come to the commission, mm-hmm. but right now, if you do, you're basically looking at a ninety percent loss in. Right. Business. So what business is going to do that? Right. So there's there's some vehicles there. There's some creative thinking going on. There's a diverse group of people talking about it. It's not just outfitters. Um, So those are challenges that are there on the fishing side. And we do represent fishing. I mean, especially with the background I had, it was easy. The growth, the growth curve on that is is pretty large. And whether we slingshot into a level post-COVID that, um, that you know, will eventually slide down. Come back down a little bit. Yeah, is is worth, I mean, it, it's anybody's guess how that's going to yeah, be. Yeah, it remains to be seen mm-hmm. how we, the things yep. level out from the COVID boom. Yep. But the challenges that we're seeing in the Jefferson and the Big Hole and the Beaverhead, these are real, and and it's, it's crowding can be an issue. Um, but also water quality and, oh, yeah. and fish health. Um, we it's all much more complex than one yeah. user group. Yeah, absolutely. And so those are challenges that are coming. Um, you know, the number of uh, uh, operators in the fishing side of things has really exploded. Right. And, um, and we've had conversations. I was privileged to work on the Madison Work Group. Mm-hmm. Um, we came up with a series of plans. They... they they just simply weren't, I guess, able to, you know, hammer it the way it needed. But difficult problems do not get solved the first go-round. They, and people lose heart, and they throw their hands up, and they criticize and point fingers. But the truth of the matter was that was an honest effort led by Commissioner Walsh, uh, participated in by a variety of people, and who put their best foot forward. And 
we'll just have to see where that ultimately goes. Right, um, right. Whether there's some other better idea out there. Okay. You know, and you, and you mentioned um, in your in your previous remarks a little bit of, of, you know, detractors' perspective on, you know, MOGA. And, and I guess I'm curious what you think about public land hunters and, and you know, resident hunters' um, concerns that Montana is maybe trending more towards, you know, a monetization of wi- wildlife. Um, and, and I think, I think um, in those conversations, the outfitting and guiding industry is usually, whether it's fault of theirs or not, is brought into that conversation about monetization because it is, as we've talked about, an economic driver and it is a business. Um, so I guess, what do you think about those concerns? You know, how do you, how do you hear them? What do you think about them? You know? So I love it. I mean, these are, you, you cut right to it. You don't dance around, do you? <laughs> so you cut right to that piece and you hear this all the time, the monetization side of it, and you can't dismiss it. You can't, it's, there's some reality here, right? An outfitted trip or an outfitter makes his money by providing a service. Mm-hmm. Monetization of a resource in my mind starts with the sale of fish by the pound. Mm-hmm. It starts with sale of logging by the board foot or truck. So if I'm logging, and which I have, I get paid by how many truckloads I send out. Right. Or if I'm commercial fishing, I get paid by how many pounds of fish I produce. Right. That's not the case in outfitting. Mm-hmm. It is a service-oriented thing. Uh, you are buying my service, right. my tent, my horse, my camp, my food, my, my knowledge, and I am assisting you, helping you go out and enjoy uh, an outdoor experience. I'm going to get paid whether you kill something or not. Right. I mean, some people go home without an elk. That's correct. And, and still, but still the money is transfers hands, money transfers hands, but it is largely for the service. Now, what is that? Okay. Max dodging the question. That's not true. It is, there is a level of monetization, but how does money change in hands for that service differ in any way than a community who bases its, um, hotel sales, restaurant sales on, on hunters or sporting goods stores that put on a whole host of specials on hunting gear and equipment and 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 all and tapered to the hunter um, who's going to go out they're providing a service they're selling them a product and they have or or even these talk shows mm-hmm. i mean if we didn't have a hunting season there wouldn't be a lot of this stuff either right no exactly and, and so monetization and, uh, and you mean you mean you know the meat eaters the randy newbergs all the hunting industry the hunting media well and it's just it's a lot bigger than all of that right but i mean safari club international right now is in um nashville and it's a massive thing right, right? and so monetization if if moga outfitters were getting paid by the pound by the inch of horn which they don't right that would be one thing but that's not the case. Right. And so that sounds like a deflection. I mean, I don't, it, I don't, I don't think it puts so. It, it puts it into the realm of other service sector things. Right. And, and I, think, I think the industry needs to be damn mindful of what 
the perception is when you're in the field. Mm -hmm. And and make no mistake about it, Tom, we've got some really, really great people, but we got some idiots too. Mm -hmm. Every industry does. Mm -hmm. Every industry does. And and those guys can undo the good that four or five or six or ten really good operators have done, and it takes one off to right. change the whole thing. Right. So the question had to do with how do I feel about the monetization argument? Um, that's how I view it. Right. Um, and the North American model of wildlife conservation, obviously as a student of wildlife management and research, we were exposed to this. Um, I don't see this as a, the, the attempt to make that the cornerstone of the argument against outfitting it actually doesn't really wash academically. Mm -hmm. you, you want it. Some people want it to be, but it doesn't. Okay. And I think the I think the larger challenge from a policy standpoint going forward is is how do you manage the space that the outfitting industry in the in the tourism market uh, brings to the table economically without disenfranchising. The max and the time because I, I don't do outfitted hunts. I mean, I'm I'm not. Yeah. I'm just like you. I knock on doors to yeah. go find a place to right. hunt. Exactly. And um and I'm I'm good at it. I do it. Yeah. And um but how do we find that balance? And mm -hmm. balance is really a key. I will tell you that um, the last time we surveyed our membership, um, to be a licensed outfitter in the state of Montana addresses hunting and fishing. That's it. Right. Those are the two activities that require licensure as an outfitter. There's tests and all that stuff. But river rafting, hiking, llama trekking, whatever it is you want to do, not a licensed practice. However, among our outfitter members, 30% of the revenue stream that they realize today is from from things outside of hunting and fishing. Oh, like non-consumptive non outfitting. Exactly. Gu guided trips, photo safaris, exactly. raft trips. So they have adapted their business model to a changing demand. Mm -hmm. And and that changing demand is backcountry horseback. Mm -hmm. Summer trips are at an all-time high if you're, you know, people want. You know, the tourist coming to Montana, and, and I, frankly, a lot of Montana residents now, a growing percentage of them, are seeking these these um, experiential uh, like that, that rugged activities. that rugged Western experience. They want it, and 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 they're not no longer looking at destinations as much as they're looking for experiences. Mm. And so, adapting your services to that has been a fairly important part in the sustainability of the industry. Of the industry. Taking the pressure out of the hunting side, for example, right. and moving it over into... Well, it goes back to your sustainability other. argument. Yep. Yep. Those things are, you know, a little bit more sustainable, um, probably have, you know, longer seasons. It makes business mm -hmm. sense to diversify that way. Yeah. Um, do you see this trend in out-of-state leasing of private lands as a concern for outfitting? I mean, like you said that, you know, outfitters, guides, they make a lot of their living um, outfitting hunts on private land. And, you know, this trend of big money individuals coming in and buying, you know, or, or leasing private property 
not for the purpose of outfitting, but for just for the purpose of their own fun and hunting. Do you see that as a troubling trend for the outfitting industry? Well, private leasing of property for the purpose of your own recreation, whether it's hunting or fishing or some other thing, is not new. It's been around right. as long or longer than I've been here. That's for sure. The the interesting to answer your question, yeah, I, I do. Mm-hmm. And but it's way bigger than just outfitting. It's all of us. Right. I mean, in every every form, and it runs right into the the core value of landowner and property rights. Mm-hmm. It's their property. They choose to do what they they want to do with it, and um, and and many of them, uh, and this is true with the outfitter leasing that goes on too. That revenue stream can have the benefit of making sure that those lands remain in a working landscape, mm-hmm. as opposed to subdivisions and and some other way to break them up. So the trends in this stuff and the new models that are out there, um, troubling, I guess so. Certainly a, a, a new landscape mm-hmm. that you have to work with. Right. And, and <clears throat> it's going to change things. In, in, in the outfitter community, you are offering these services, which require that you have some place to provide them. Right. And you might be a public land outfitter or you're a private land outfitter. Um, you may own that property yourself or you may have uh, adjacent ranches uh, tied into it. Um, the price that you can do that for from a business standpoint may necessarily be less than what you and I could do if we were a couple of big hot shots yeah. and, and didn't need to worry about a margin. Right. Um, and so it, it, generally speaking, the outfitter community can't compete right. with the prices that some of these hunt clubs or individuals right. uh, choose to, to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has impacted it. I can think of half a dozen guys just in the last two years that have lost their, um, their, uh, opportunity to provide services on certain pieces of ground. I will say this, though, that the model that most people assume in outfitter acquisition of private land looks a lot like somebody sneaking, not sneaking around, going out and saying, hey, I'd like to do this and to the landowner. More often than not, a landowner knows the rancher and is fed up with some activity that occurred on his property. Again, the 1% or 2% or mm-hmm. whatever it might be mm-hmm. has caused him some real anxiety and, and real problem. And that individual makes the call to somebody that he trusts and says, would you mind right. managing the hunting on my property? I, I can't handle this anymore. Right. I missed Thanksgiving dinner because I had people beating on my door wanting to know if they could shoot a buck they saw in my yard. Right. And so the, that, that, na- that bad 1%, not, not the average rank-and-file mm-hmm. Montanan, but that triggers a behavioral pattern that says, you know, I can have elk, I can have hunters, it's easier for me to have elk. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Right, right. And and so a lot of the relationships that get built into the uh, private land outfitting um, are actually based on personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Someone has reached out to them as often as not and said, please come do this. I, I don't want to manage this mm-hmm. anymore. And what about, you know, the national decline in hunter numbers? Does that concern, concern you or the industry? Not really, because I don't think it's a reality here in the American West, and I don't know that it's a reality in um, our nation per se. Interesting. In fact, if you look at, um, you know, you're wearing your meat eater hat, mm-hmm. um, that model has has done a tremendous amount for people to accept and understand the quality of that food source. Mm-hmm. And so what was, I'm either a hunter or I'm not a hunter. I'm a trophy hunter or I'm a meat hunter. That That's a blurred line anymore. Right. People are hunting in greater numbers if they have it available to them and have some mentoring systems available for the purpose of providing high-quality protein. And you got to love that. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, um, I don't know if it makes up for the decline in, in hunter numbers, but what it does at the ballot box on pro-hunting or, or anti-hunting issues is those people are now – they may not be, you know, overt hunters. They may not be what they live in, but they are going to favor it. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to lean that way because there's a great value in a quality and clean food source. And so I think that paradigm has changed in 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. the trophy hunt and all that, not, not viewed real positively. The, now, the guy or gal that spends the entire season seeking out that one bull, trying to do one thing really exceptional, now that's heralded and honored. Um, but so is going out and, you know, shooting a cow right. for the freezer right. and celebrating it as maybe the first time you've provided food for your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and you mentioned this earlier um, in your remarks, and I just want to have an opportunity to circle back to it. What do you think about the demands from the non-consumptive crowd to have a bigger seat at the table? Um, you know, and, and given what we've seen in, you know, Washington and Colorado on their wildlife commissions, um, is that, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, that's, that can be a tough one on the surface of it. And we have, MOGA has acted on this. The, let's take wolves in 313. Okay. There's a legitimate argument to be made that there are non-consumptive businesses and revenues being ed, received through this wildlife viewing. That That's legitimate. Mm-hmm. That is, it says. And no, explain for folks, 313, that by that you outside mean. Outside of Yellowstone National right. Park. Hunting District. Yep. Yep. Hunting District 313 is always on the front page about right. the wolf quota. Mm-hmm. And it is legitimate to say that businesses that sustain themselves through wildlife viewing are real. Um, I don't know if their claims of economic um, impact are valid because I've really never seen um, a study like ITRR has done mm-hmm. on on the segment of the outfitting industry I represent. Right. But let's assume for a minute they're there, there. It's equally valid, valid that predator management is essential to healthy herds for us. So those of us who um, enjoy 
the ungulates um, are necessarily going to be in favor of managed uh, uh, predators. Mm -hmm. And what what is what I find troubling, at least in my experiences, with the very active group advocating for either reduced wolf quotas or no wolf quotas or or concerns about black bears or uh, what have you is that there doesn't seem to be an end to it. it, it, it the, I honestly don't know if they're going to be happy with anything short of no, you can't just do com- it. Just a complete ban on hunting. Yeah. And and or at least a ban on wolf hunting or, or yeah. some other thing. Well, but I mean, and, like you say, if you if that if that theory which, proves out, slippery slope. So this is where it becomes, in my opinion, really difficult for divergent interests to come together. Because what is your end game? Right. Certainly, certainly some sectors, and I'm going to get into trouble for this. Some of these <laughs> statements, but but you take three thirteen. Cares whether it's seven wolves or two wolves in the quota, mm-hmm. honestly, and um, and and that's in deference to a, a legitimate use of the resource. But well, when does it end? Well, right, and you I know? mean, I think you know, you're you're a scientist, and I guess how do you feel about some of these decisions or these beliefs? that the non-consumptive crowd has that aren't necessarily based in science. You know, like your, your, your ballot box biology sort yep. of a deal. Um, you know, how does that square with, with this argument um, that, that uh, you know, maybe this non-consumptive crowd isn't necessarily seeing the full picture? Well, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to go after those guys directly, but I, I, you, you've opened a door for, I think, a really important area of discussion. Mm-hmm. And that is, where is the application of science and where is the application of allocation? What are those? And when you go to the commission meeting and you get engaged in something, you hear people yell all the time, follow the science, use the science, do the science. Well, what does that mean exactly? Because mm-hmm. the science of population dynamics, the science of, you know, wildlife management, that's one thing. Right. But what that is designed to do and the department's role in that, the department's role in science, in the application of science to wildlife and fisheries management is ultimately to be able to describe the line of sustainable and unsustainable. That's what we expect from our wildlife and fisheries professionals. They will tell us where the line of sustainability is. And it's not going to be a single line. It's gonna, there's going to be a margin there mm-hmm. up and down. But, but when it comes to allocation, so assuming that the, the population that in question is at a sustainable level, can have some harvest, can have, it's, it's healthy, right. you know, it's not in jeopardy. Then the only discussions that are happening are about allocation. Who is and who isn't? Who does and who doesn't? You mean for the available resource? Exactly. Whether it's consumptive, non-consumptive, whether you're a bow hunter, whether you're a rifle hunter, you're operating under the premise first 
that the department has said this, what, this population, this segment, is healthy enough to sustain something. Mm -hmm. And here's the harvestable surplus, or here's the amount. The argument and discussion about in the allocative arena among the beneficial users, it, it becomes winners and losers. Right. That is not a space for the department to engage in mm -hmm. because it jeopardizes their role as professional scientists. They, we have to look to them to, uh, to purely apply scientific principles, data, research, results, and be able to say, hey, here's, our, here's the harvestable surplus. Then you have to look to the commission in the case of Montana, to divvy that up. Right. And so when we start running around saying, you know, hey, follow the science, follow the science. Yeah, definitely in that arena. But in the allocative world, right. it's the science of, of social, you know, management. It's the, the science only goes so far as to determine what resource is available. Yeah. Then and, it's up to the commission or any other elected body to determine who gets that allocation. Exactly. Right. And, and, and what's absent, so, so it, when I was with the department 20 years ago here in Montana, I don't think people understood their role sometimes. It is not the role of a local biologist to impose their um, value systems on who should and who shouldn't. It just isn't. Right. In fact, that individual compromises their professional integrity by be, having that. Opinion. By having that. Yeah. Or they can have it, but, but voicing it. Yeah, right. And then what, what's absent in the allocative arena, and I wish, I wish desperately we could have this, which I think we could, but is a set of criteria that the commission or decision makers are obligated to touch, lily pads they're obligated to touch in their decision making about um, who is and who isn't going to get what. Mm -hmm. And they would be things like... Uh, you know, proximity of similar experiences or, or opportunity, um, a history of past management practices. What, what does it look like over there? Has it been largely this or that? Um, what's the economic impact to local and, and rural, local and regional economies from that decision? Um, stuff like that. The first box you check off is, are we at a sustainable level or mm -hmm. not? And once the conservation side of it is set aside, four or five allocated criteria that could be discussed among all users. So we were coming to the table with, and we're on the same page about what the criteria are to make this decision. An objective with, framework. Exactly. So that's, that a, there's, that's a better term. So that there's just yep. not all this emotion and sentiment yeah. and stuff. It's just, and, and it doesn't have to be prioritized. It doesn't have to be locked in. It just simply has to be a, a, a process an objective framework, as you right. put it, that's really just a level of an accountability in the system. Yeah, so we're that touching any all user the group can point to and go, okay, well, yep. we this is the system. Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, I'm not sure how we got there, but you opened the door somehow. Yeah. We yeah. No, that's that's what's wonderful about these conversations. Yeah. They they go all different directions, and I'm about to take it in a different direction. Um, I suppose I lied a little bit in my intro um, that you're you're officially retired um, because. There is a part um, that you are gonna you are gonna stick with and, and continue to manage, and it's a it's a it's something that is near and dear to your heart um, that I've observed over the years, and that is big hearts under the big sky. Um, can you tell me about the organization and, and the work it does, um, and how it's kind of affili affiliated with MOGA? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so MOGA is a five hundred one c six trade association, just like 
you know, any other trade right. association, only I think we're probably cooler. <laughs> and um, they also have, through the genius of uh, Gene Johnson and um, Karen Hooker at the time, created a 501c3 side of it. And so MOGA, I actually ran two nonprofits mm -hmm. at that point, right? The 501c3 is termed the Education Institute. And under the Education Institute are two goals. One is conservation education, and two is philanthropic giving. Mm -hmm. And the Big Hearts Under the Big Sky program falls under MOGA's philanthropic arm. Okay. And so like any... Uh, any trade association, any industry, and, and I mean, again, I'll touch on the core values of rural Montana. They're giving people. Mm -hmm. They wanted to find a way to give something back mm -hmm. and, and how to best do it. When you start putting down the markers on the table of what would constitute a model, you realize that um, the donated trip is the currency that the outfitting community can trade in. Right. Um, there are many conservation organizations that tap us every year for, hey, could you give us a deer hunt? Could you give us an elk hunt? Could you give us? And they use that money to forward their conservation efforts. I mean, there isn't a chapter of Mule Deer Foundation, SCI, or any of them, Pheasants Forever, that isn't got some link that mm -hmm. way, and rightfully so. So the donated trip was, uh, okay, that's our currency. And then when you think about the, um, the, um, the nature of rural Montana values, family-centric, heavily family-centric, it was a matter of identifying a couple of areas that we could serve and then tapering it to... Populations that you could serve yes. with this philanthropic giving. Yeah, and then, and then taper it to our value system. Okay. And so that's how it emerged. It, we became, in 2007, we had these conversations. Uh, in 2008, we had stood up a program that served uh, military uh, servicemen and women who had provided extraordinary service to our country and children facing a life-threatening illness defined as if something doesn't change, they may not see their 18th birthday. Mm -hmm. Those were the two core groups. And then tied into that is what makes Big Hearts unique in the nation. There is no other organization in the country that combines professional outfitted services given to the military side and the, the youth, you know, the, the life-threatening illness side and their family. Okay. At, at the absolute center of this entire discussion is the family. This goes back to the values of, of the folks exactly. in the industry. So we're not serving groups of veterans. We're not hosting, you know, kid camps. Right. What we are doing is, is seeking out a, quali a nominated family that qualifies for a Big Hearts Under the Big Sky trip experience, which is an outdoor uh, experience. I mean, I think every one of your listeners are going to agree that Montana heals outdoors, heals. Mm -hmm. We find, you and I will find it. I'm going to find it tomorrow because tomorrow is the first day I get to go do this. I'm going fishing. <laughs> but I will be healed. I will, I will find my center. I will, I will become 
better right. for having spent a day on the water. Well, that's true with all these families. Mm -hmm. We are looking for those families that have endured something. And so imagine for a minute on the military side, the multiple deployments that a, um, a battle-hardened individual has gone through on the war on terror for 20-something years. Mm -hmm. Mom or dad, through their deployments, were gone. There are missed proms. There are missed volleyball games. There's missed football games. There's missed graduations. Birthdays, there's holidays. Birthdays, holidays. These families have carried the load mm -hmm. for the decision to have served on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And many organizations focus on the veteran. Many focus on the groups of veterans. There's a lot of restoration that has to happen there. Right. not going to say it doesn't. We focus on the family in its entirety. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that um, there's three principles to the military side of it in a big hearts trip. One, affirm the decision to have served. And I'm using the word affirm, not um, celebrate, not congratulate, not thank. Affirm that you made that decision and thank you for doing that. We understand that it was in your heart mm -hmm. to do that in front of their family members. So these are the same kids that are wondering why is dad screwed up? Why, why does he, why did he miss an arm? Why did he, why does he behave the way he does? Why does he want to spend more time, you know, with his battle buddies than he does with me? Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a whole myriad of things, Absolutely. broken families, affirm the decision to serve in fr front of their family by people they've never met. And I have seen it over and over and over again where that young boy or that young girl who doesn't understand why in the world am I, why is this happening to my family, understands that there are people in this world that love their parents, they love them, it's unconditional, we appreciate the work you've done, and we recognize that you have carried a load on my behalf. Right. And you might only be 12. Right. So that's the the military side of it and kind of an uh, we do a I'll, I'll tell you about the kid thing next and then and then um link it together if i can on the child side of it it's a very similar kind of model but a totally different trajectory uh, imagine a curve for the military where you're starting off in a tough place mm -hmm. And you're, after your battle deployments and after you've served and after you put your family back together, you're actually on a trajectory to a, a quote-unquote normal right. life maybe. I'm not sure that's adequate. But imagine it as a sigmoid curve that's increasing. Yep. It's exactly the opposite mm -hmm. with other family members who have a child facing a life-threatening illness. Right. At one point in their lives, they were they were The, worst, the worst is yet to come maybe. Possibly. Yeah. And we're catching them in that space where the uncertainty is still there. And maybe for years, uh, they've had to deal with this. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, imagine for a moment being a, a sister who, for three years of your life, you were the centerpiece of the family. You were the apple of your dad's eye. You were, the, you were the, the thing that made your mom smile. And then 
you have a sibling and that sibling then causes uh, the family to rally just as beautiful just as wonderful just as absolutely a gem and a godsend in all ways but you now have to invest your family energies in addressing what is a, a life-threatening illness mm -hmm. and all the reserves all the time and energy get poured into that so big hearts under the big sky looks at this and says we're going to take that and we're going to take you for a week we're going to carry that rock for you mm -hmm. you are going to have a break we are professionally trained we in the background of one of these trips you you couldn't imagine the amount of planning that goes in things that families don't even need to know about right. but our our emergency response plans our our ability to address things on site it's all there and imagine for the week everybody it's built around that child for sure, mm -hmm. but it's designed specifically so every member of the family is part of this. Right. Um, in the Bible, there's a, a character called Barnabas. Mm -hmm. And Barnabas was one of the apostles who was always in the background. Mm -hmm. He was, he was, he's actually celebrated if you look him up a little bit, but, but he ran around with some of the heavyweights. Mm -hmm. And, and in doing so, he became known as the person who always put others ahead of him, always supported everybody. So in our world, the, the siblings of that child are recognized with the Barnabas Award. Mm -hmm. we, re we, we tell that story wow. and we talk to him about right. it. You are so important here. You are so valuable. And you have done this on behalf of your brother or sister for years and you need recognition too so these trips can be of any kind they can be hunting fishing they can be backcountry horseback they can be whatever and one of the things that you begin to to realize in having and i've administered this thing since you know what 16 years now 17 years something wow. like that it is the most important work i've ever done in my life yeah bar none yeah and what you realize is that um when we first built it, if you could imagine a spoked wheel and the hub of that wheel, we thought, oh, the Big Hearts program, and we're going to radiate all this goodwill, like kind of like Johnny Appleseed. We had like one or two family experiences, and we realized we had it exactly wrong. It is the family that is the hub of that wheel, and each spoke is not radiating outward, it's radiating inward. And we had inadvertently created a community-based opportunity to give. Mm -hmm. And every person, we, we just finished our Big Hearts Banquet here a couple weeks ago. It was 40 below zero that night. We had sold 311 seats. And I was scared to death that the natural thing would happen. We would lose 30, 40% of our people. Right. We had four seats empty. Yeah, people made it. They came. Mm -hmm. And why do they do that? Because they, inside all of us is this inherent need to give. We, we have it in us. Mm -hmm. Your heart, you want to be able to give. And so having something like this where you can be part of it and you can give something, you can give the meat cutting you can give a rental car you can you can give access to um your your house so we can base out of there you can i mean you name it it's a million things right 
It's a community-based opportunity, and it satisfies a, an incredibly deep need that we all have. So this is a program that is so mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is satisfying the needs of a family at a time when there may be no other answer. Mm -hmm. It is satisfying the needs of the people involved because there's this natural need to give. I can remember um, one of these hardened combat guys that we had, and we, we deal, we have deal, dealt with some of the most elite warriors in the country, mm -hmm. and we've dealt with guys that were just, you know, deployed and just doing his, their thing. They, right. they did this instead of going to jail, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But one of these hardened guys, and they all do this, they come up to me. We host a dinner at the end of it. You, you can't do a Big Hearts trip experience without having the dinner at the end. Mm. And if any of your listeners have been around, we, we, we invite the community, we have them, we have them come in. But the, the dinner is the period at the end of the sentence. And a couple things happen. One, in this case, the guy comes up to me and says, Mac, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean you can't do this? Too much. He said, no, I'm not the right guy. There's oh, far more worthy people. There right. were far more worthy men that I served with that really need. And I said, look, here's how this is going to happen. You are the vessel into which all this love, appreciation, care is going to get poured into tonight. Mm -hmm. We can't serve everybody. It, it, we just don't have the capacity. So, Ryan, you are the guy who's going to have that poured into you on behalf of everybody just like you. So right. you need to buck up and carry it like yeah. a man. Yeah. And, well, that got his attention. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. Um, I mean, he understood it. But at the same time, those people out there needed it. Right. And sort of the way we close those, those dinners off is somewhat metaphorical. We have a group of women in the state of Montana and, and frankly, nationally, women, I, I guess they're women, they're, they're quilters. Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe they've got some guys mixed in with them, I don't know. But I know, I know the ones in Montana. They deliver handmade quilts to us each year. And those quilts are presented to each Big Hearts family at the end of the trip. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and the idea is that if you believe that the family is the nucleus of American society, if you think the patchwork that makes us all up, we're all different, we're, but, but we're stitched together, and we're a fabric as a nation, as a community, as a family of these patches, mm -hmm. then you can understand the impact of giving a quilt to a family on behalf of the Big Hearts program because they've now been incorporated into the Big Hearts family for their lives. Right. They will be members of the Big Hearts family. The quilt acts as that symbol. Exactly. Wow. And it's been a powerful um, way to communicate that love, that passion, that appreciation. Our focus on the veteran community is, is starting to change now. We're not in the war on terror, you know, but we are in this incredibly important transitional phase. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not old enough to understand. Maybe you've heard stories. But that transition from Vietnam to home was a time in our history that can never be, it can never be repeated. Mm -hmm. And, um, excuse me, the, we are in that phase now. Mm -hmm. We have men and women 
who engaged in their war on terror, who entered into service, whose identity is tied to their military their service. service. Yep. In a very weird way, I'm going through the same thing right now. Imagine what it's going to look like for me tomorrow. Right. I'm, my identity was this, yep. but it's not. Right. So we need to change our, our focus a little bit, and, and we're looking for those transitional families. We're looking for families that need to be restored and pulled together, right. um, and we're good at it. Right. There is something about an outfitted trip, application of the rural value, the unconditional love, the appreciation, just the, the nature of who we are as people in the outfitting community make this an absolute no-brainer. Mm -hmm. They are, there is nothing unauthentic about what is happening on these trips. Right. These become very personal. They become very close. They become very important in their transition to a better life, I hope. Right, right. Well, hey, thanks, Mac, for coming on. I guess, does this mean you're going to have more time for hunting and fishing? Yeah. I mean, it is sort of a rehirement, right? I still got the big heart stuff to do, and, and we're going to grow that out a little bit. Right. But, yeah, that's the idea, and at least hunting and fishing without a worry. Right. A worry about... <laughs> Moga. <laughs> the, what, what's stacking up at your desk while exactly. you're out there having fun? Yeah. Good. Well, Good. thanks very much for the opportunity. I know yeah. I got a little long-winded with it. No, um, that's what we, we, we like, long-winded. Do you have hearts. any final thoughts that we maybe didn't, didn't get to touch on? No, I think you got it. I, I just I want to see... In the conservation, hunting, fishing, and, and recreation community base, I want to see an effort made to bring people together. I, I, we never touched on the Sportsman's Caucus, but mm -hmm. I spearheaded the Montana Legislative Sportsman's Caucus with the purpose of bringing diverse interests together that should be bipartisan, bicameral. We're talking about pro-hunting, pro-fishing, pro-recreational shooting, pro-trapping agendas and mm -hmm. how in the world can those be partisan in the state of Montana and we need to encourage our legislators to become part of it mm -hmm. it should be a badge of honor for them when they run for re-election I'm a part of the sportsman's caucus and we need to encourage those men and women that are part of the advisory council to that caucus diverse interests to sit down every week and struggle through the issues that are being thrown at them legislatively right if we can see that model continue to grow and gain legs then I think we're on a positive trajectory. Right. Maybe see less fire and work fireworks at some of those hearings on the wildlife policy. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, hey, thank you, Matt. Yep. Montana Untamed is a podcast from the newsrooms of Lee Enterprises Montana newspapers. Visit any of our websites or subscribe wherever podcasts are found.